Hello, hello, and welcome to the FO News Show. My name is Skeletal, and with me, as always, is Jackson Roberts. Jackson, we've got a jam-packed show to get into today. We won't waste any time, but how are you doing, bud? I'm doing great. You know, every week we like to think maybe there's a theme to the news. This week, I don't think there's any theme, but there is news and lots of it. It will take us in many different directions. So you are absolutely right. We should hop right on in. Yeah, so there uh, will be some news whiplash here and there, but let's just get right into it. Break news right out of today, uh, the Devontae Adams situation. Uh, if you don't know, after the uh, Monday night football game against the Kansas City Chiefs, where the Raiders had lost, uh, Adams was caught on camera uh, shoving a uh, freelance photographer as he went into the locker room that had happened across paths with him. Uh, news out of this morning, uh, Adams has been charged with misdemeanor assault after shoving the cameraman. Uh, he had filed a police report in Kansas City and was treated at a local hospital uh, for non-life-threatening injuries. Uh, detailed in the case was uh, whiplash, uh, mild neck injury, and potential concussion-like symptoms. Uh, Adams did apologize uh, after the game, uh, immediately in the, sc- in the media scrum during the post-game. He had apologized to the guy. Uh, he had jumped, you know, Adam said he had jumped in front of him and I said, quote, bumped into him, kind of pushed him and he ended up on the ground. Uh, Adams apologized, said it was a mix of frustration and just the guy being wrong place, wrong time, essentially, and that he shouldn't have responded that that way. Jackson, a tough, a, an odd situation in Las Vegas, uh, you know, very honestly, pretty poor behavior by Adam shoving the guy, but. This misdemeanor assault feels uh feels like a lot there. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Football is the most assault like of any sport, right? Like there are there are attempted assaults on every play, and emotions run so high that the minute things end, it's not easy to just like turn the the mechanism off and go back to being a normal person. So obviously bad behavior as you said from Devonte adams but at the same time like these emotions boil over it yet he, he obviously didn't look like he meant to do damage to the guy right like it was definitely frustration it was definitely wrong place wrong time uh and i don't know how to prevent things like this in the future as long as you know people like this are going to continue to be on the field and crossing pads over the tunnel it's it's sort of a like, yes, we absolutely have to lay blame on Adams, but it is very wrong place, wrong time. And I don't know if there's anything to be done to prevent things like this again. I, I don't think the NFL needs to worry more about uh, prevention, as we'll get into later in the show. They've already had their hands full with that on the roughing the passer calls. Uh, but it shouldn't it shouldn't need uh, it shouldn't need correction. Like that was an incredibly scummy move by Adams. Uh, if you want to, you know delay things or have the cameraman have some, you know, a little bit more wherewithal to go around Adams, maybe. But uh, the actual criminal charge just feels like an unnecessary escalation of this. Uh, I thought, while you know, well, it could have gone a little bit further. The apology was adequate. Uh, McDaniels also expressed his support for Adams, uh, saying, 
I support Devontae wholeheartedly as a human being, as a person. He's a great guy. I just want to know, uh, I know that was an unfortunate situation. We obviously don't want any of our guys to be doing anything like that. He knows that. He's very well aware of that. But I know the person. I don't think there was any intent behind it on his part, which I kind of get. You know, there's yet to be any information about whether there's a fine or a potential suspension coming from the NFL. And I get that you don't want the inherent violence of football extending beyond the field. Uh, but this feels like a pretty isolated incident. Uh, the misdemeanor assault thing, maybe, he, maybe, you know, I won't put words in the guy's mouth. I won't, you know, give intent for him. Uh, it just, it feels like an escalation to me that isn't really warranted given the extent of the interaction. Yeah, I mean, that all depends on the person, right? And And how severely they're injured for one, but, you know, how personally they take offense to it for the other, because that person's not going to get anything from Devontae Adams being suspended, Devontae Adams being fined by the NFL. You know, that money goes straight to the league office. That doesn't go to him. So, uh, you know, it's it's totally on that person whether or not they want to escalate it with the means that they have, which is, you know, police report and is whether, whether or not it's warranted misdemeanor charges. So I'm definitely not going to say whether it is indeed warranted or whether that person should have made that decision because that's on them, but they're taking the legal recourse that they have. Moving on, Panthers, fire head coach Matt Rule and defensive coordinator Phil Snow. Jackson, apparently it does not take seven years like Jay-Z to to turn a football team around. Uh, You can ask the Jacksonville Jaguars, you can ask the New York Jets, the New York Giants. Uh, clearly not the case. Uh, rule 11 and 27 in two seasons and change in Carolina with the Panthers team currently ranks 31st in DVOA, uh, by a 31st offense and a 16th defense. Uh, rule signed a seven year, $62 million deal. Uh, he, Jackson, he'll still be getting paid $40 million paid out in $834,000 monthly installments. They get a dollar-for-dollar credit on rules buyout if he gets a job elsewhere, namely as a college head coach. But, uh, Jackson, at that point, why why take another job? You're set for life. <laughs> yeah, so first things first, if you're the Carolina Panthers, you are still hyping up Matt Rule's resume to absolutely every college athletic director that you possibly can. Because you're like, I need to get out from under the weight of this contract by any means necessary. You know, Oklahoma, Baylor, who, who, I don't care. Just call people until somebody picks up the phone. Um, I think the, the Phil Snow firing is kind of the interesting part in all this. Because I think we, we certainly saw the writing on the wall with Matt Rule, given the way that last season ended and this season started. And, you know, he kind of put all his chips in on the Baker Mayfield experiment this year and that was clearly not paying off we'll talk more about baker pretty soon but it's interesting to me that it's kind of a complete teardown uh they have interesting pieces i would say on defense for the most part and uh you know they their one win was essentially a defensive win and as we stated they're kind of middle of the pack in defensive dboa so i'm interested to hear your thoughts kale on whether or not you thought that was you know kind of a necessary step in all this I, I Carolina is in my mind just trying to clean house as much as possible. 
I think the firing of Phil Snow comes from the fact that if you just look at where all the talent is allocated right now for the Panthers, especially in, you know, where they've kind of hit on in the draft, where they've kind of hit on in free agency, like most of the talent is on the defense. It's, it's guys like Brian Burns. It's, you know, making adds to guys like Shaq Thompson and Xavier Woods. It's, you know, it's also drafting guys like JC Horn, who's been solid. Uh, the, and Jeremy Chen is on IR right now, but yeah, like, you know, the offense has been doing nothing. Like, like we've seen that and they haven't, you know, they haven't had much help either. They keep swinging and missing on quarterback. Uh, this is the second uh, quarterback that they've tried to get in as many years uh, that clearly has not worked out. Um, of course, referring to Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield. Uh, but you look at like, they're defensive-led teams. I, I mean, Chicago uh, has been pretty defensively focused at the moment, if only because they really don't trust their offense. But, like, there are absolutely defensively-led teams. And I guess if you want to build out Carolina that way, even though you have a you know, a offensive skill position room of guys like Christian McCaffrey and DJ Moore and even Robbie Anderson, but – I just don't think this defense was living up to its caliber. Uh, you're, you're wasting guys like Brian Burns. You're wasting guys like, you know, Xavier Woods. It's, I, I guess it's just a full clean house. And I think the only thing we're waiting on now is like potential fire sale. I, there's some, you know, Christian McCaffrey actually has a fantastic contract. If anyone's looking to trade for him, if only because the, three years and $36 million remaining on his contract after this year, none of it's guaranteed. That can either be fully voided or, you know, very easily restructured. You're really only taking on a potential prorated amount of $1 million in salary, a little extra. You know, if you're looking to just tear it all down, you know, McCaffrey's the best place to start. Maybe you want to build around guys like Brian Burns, but like, you know, there's not a lot here worth keeping around in the sense that, you know, this team won't be worth building around. None of these guys are going to want to stay here. Don't keep, you know, guys like Christian McCaffrey hostage. Let them run, yeah. like, let them run free. Send them to, uh, you know, there's, if you want to send them out of conference, I know Buffalo's going to be looking for a nice pass catching back to, uh, you know, you talk about a juggernaut there. Boy, that would be insane. Uh, I think DJ Moore is another piece that, I, I don't really get the value of keeping him in house and building around him either. Right. It's not like he's a true wide receiver one. He's on a relatively cost effective deal uh, in terms of, you know, three years, I think it's about 45 million. So I, I would look to deal him as well if it is a fire sale situation. And it, it, the whole situation just goes back to quarterbacking, right? Like for, for all the failings of Matt Rule as a head coach, you know, in, in three years, he's got Teddy Bridgewater, Sam Darnold, Baker Mayfield, PJ Walker starting games, Cam Newton starting games, and then you draft Matt Corral and he instantly gets hurt. So that's six names that you might think of as potential solutions at the quarterback position in, what, 28 games, what we said? That's just crazy. You know, it all comes back to stability at the one position that matters more than all the rest of them. 
I mean, you talk about the Browns couch jersey. Are we going to start the uh, the Kyle Allen post Cam Newton uh, quarterback jersey for the Panthers? I don't know. It's yeah, it's it's getting pretty bad there. Uh, Walker will be starting for the Panthers this week, and we'll get into him a little bit later in the show. Uh, but yeah, the Panthers pretty much have to start from scratch here. Moving on, the NFL is going to be reviewing some roughing the passing rules after the season because at the moment it is uh, – you saw the results, Jackson. It is, uh, you know, the Chris Jones sack on Monday night, the Grady Jarrett sack on Tom Brady. Dominate discussion coming out of this weekend. It is, you know uh, – sorry, one more. The anonymous committee member who had uh, reported the story told ESPN and Ed Warder, the hard part is we have no real standard for what roughing the passer looks like. The only way to correct this is to have a review process for personal fouls. We may even have to do that for OPI and DPI. These are huge fouls that impact and can change the game where the foul is or isn't called. I don't know if the powers that would want the review process for that personal foul or not, though. And Grady Jarrett came out and said, I don't know. I'm not saying that it costs us the game, but it costs us the opportunity to win the game. And it's costing people games. It's going to cost people livelihoods. It's going to cost, pe- uh, cost people opportunities. We never know who is going to go down and make a crazy play. Jackson, I want to get your opinion on two things. First, what was your reaction to uh, to both hits, the Jared hit and the Jones hit? Uh, well, Jared's hit came in a crucial situation that didn't allow the Falcons to get the ball back. Jones just hit pretty much changed the game in favor of the Chiefs. Uh, the ref's quivering voice said as much. Uh, they pretty much got all the calls the rest of the game. Uh, what was your opinion on the two hits? And we'll get into word or after, but what's your initial thoughts on the review process for some of this stuff? I think a review process would be a mess, um, which is it's what it was with the uh, pass interference review process in 2019, you know, that came and went very quick. Um, And I don't know what the right way to correct this situation is, but I almost feel like a review process is a great way to make things worse. So, I mean, yeah, you said it like those, those two plays very much impacted the outcome of the game in some cases, maybe the opposite direction than you would think, but it is definitely kind of the, the hot button topic you know facing the general league right now uh this is a league that's had to go so far to protect quarterbacks um you think back to early in tom brady's career when he was hit on the scramble uh, against the buffalo bills and his helmet came off and how how much quarterback play and officiating have changed since then uh it's obvious that some of that progress was necessary and has made the game you know not only more entertaining but safer for quarterbacks but you also don't want to get to a point where defensive players don't feel like they can do their job. And I think what Grady Jarrett is saying is exactly that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think that we've sort of got to err on the side of if somebody wraps up a quarterback and ends up throwing them down, that that has to be like obviously visually egregious for it to be called a uh, uh, for it to be a personal foul because I think the refs maybe sort of have their finger on the trigger when they see something like that. And I think that if it's not a hit, if it is throwing the quarterback down, 
then we have to be a little bit more, you know, exercise some more discretion in that regard. Yeah, it's it feels very much like a let's let's separate the Jones sack from the Jarrett sack for a second. The Jarrett sack feels very much like a reaction to the uh, the hit on Tua Tungavailoa, uh, where he kind of got whipped down. The you know, while him being back in the game is an indictment on the concussion process uh, and just the mistakes that happened in getting him cleared for the Thursday night football game. The sack that generated the concussion and the fencing response was very much like the hit on Brady where he just gets whipped down and the torque of that hit, uh, you know, generates much more force than a straight on tackle would. That being said, you know, I don't know what you do about momentum. Like, you know, there's so much denial of physics in creating rules around this and creating protection that in some cases I, I worry that we're getting down a bit of a slippery slope. And speaking of slippery slopes, that that review process opens up a can of worms. The biggest the, the biggest thing for me is just you you only think about reviews in a vacuum when they happen. Like uh, reviewing DPI, reviewing roughing the passer, all of these happen. And you only think about the cases where, oh, that shouldn't have been called. What review opens up, you don't think about the hundreds of situations where it, like, it's ticky-tack. It could have been called. Uh, and it just wasn't. It shouldn't have been called, but might have been. Uh, like, now you're getting really, really granular. And it just, it slows down the game. It creates a less watchable product. And... I, I recognize the need for safety across the board, but it just feels like the wrong answer. Yeah, I have I have two direct examples of uh, you know cases where replays come into play and, and shouldn't have and should be the precautionary tale for why it doesn't. The first one is obviously the OPI DPI review process that came as a result of the Nickel Roby Coleman no call in the 2018 NFC Championship game, an obvious pass interference that should have been called. We just have to be better and make these calls. Uh, and the other example being the Buster Posey rule in MLB. And this year it's turned into this entire review process where outcomes of games are getting changed because catchers are blocking the plate a quarter of a second early. Um, it's, it's the type of thing that you can't over-officiate. You can't, you know, when replay goes too far, that's when we need to rein it in because we can't have, you know, plays that have been in the game for, as long as the games existed being taken out of the game somehow, because, you know, one extreme example set the standard. You know, the, the option no one's talking about is just make the NFL refs full time. You know, I, I think we wouldn't have as bad of calls as, you know, as many mistakes as we've seen in the game recently, if these were, you know, full-time paid individuals and their entire careers are dedicated to, you know, learning the rules and calling the game right. It, it feels it feels trivial, but I feel like it's at least an option no one's talking about that probably should get talked about. Uh, you know, there's already people calling for refs not, you know, there, there's, there's one individual pool reporter, I believe, that gets to ask, uh, pretty much yes or no questions to refs after the game and ask for 
minor explanations on specific calls, but you know, if you make these guys full time, maybe one, there's an additional accountability measure that's counteracted by the protection of a full time position. But it just feels like the biggest impact to me just feels like, oh, these guys have a full time job where they're only focusing on calling the best possible games. It, it you know, maybe there's problems in that, and I'm thinking too far ahead, but it feels pretty cut and dry to me that having guys part time and only you know, only coming to games from July to January doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I don't, I don't know exactly what we can, you know, further add to this. I, I, I think that is a potential solution. Kel, I, I just, you know, I, I think officiating is going to be something that's always a complaint in any professional sport. Um, and I think that sometimes it's going to swing the other way as it is here where we're worried about over officiating. So I, I, I like your solution here, um, but I don't know if it for sure changes things, but that's kind of the point here is there is no for sure way to change these things. Yeah, as Coral Skipper points out, NHL refs, NBA refs, MLB umpires, all full-time. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see what the solution is, but it feels like at the very least that could be an easy one. I will point out, MLB fans have the opposite complaint where the fact that MLB umpires are both full-time and unionized means that umpires who people sort of across the game acknowledge as bad, you know, maybe someone whose name rhymes with, you know, Langel Bernandez, something like that, uh, can't be removed from their posts. So there are always going to be issues one way or another. Yeah. And then we get the situation where, uh, you know, NFL refs are wearing armbands for referee bullying, uh, like they like they did in the MLB. So everything's a slippery slope, I guess. Moving on, Giants punter Jamie Gillum taking in the sights of London because he can't leave. <laughs> Jamie Gillum is currently stuck in London. Uh, had come to the U.S. on a NATO visit and did not get changed to a work visa when he finally got to the NFL. Uh, And he's currently stuck in London on a passport issue, essentially. Uh, He's expected to return home Thursday, uh, and he should have, uh, should be available for the game Sunday. But uh, (laughs) there's no contingency plan if he doesn't. Jackson, what would you do if you were stuck in London for an extra couple days? (laughs) Um, man, um, this is like one of our more lighthearted stories, I guess, you know, obviously horribly inconvenient for Jamie Gillen, but at the end of the day, you know, there's not like livelihood at stake here as long as Jamie Gillen gets back. Um, so, you know, I guess go check out, I, I, you know what I would not do is go see Big Ben. People always tell me that Big Ben is literally just a clock and your time is better spent elsewhere. There's good food in London. There's good cider, you know. See, see the sights. Um, Apple cider, delicious. Yeah, uh, love it there. The, I will say, just walking, walking like what, London's a great walking city. True. You know, get a couple of museums in. Walk across the bridge. Go to the Globe Theater. Real nice. Real, real pretty city. And you see, I'd, you pass, know, I'd pass on the double decker bus as well. Those would be Big Ben double decker bus. I would pass on those if I were one of our listeners. We'll say Churchill War Room, very cool. Churchill War Room is a must. Well, 
I also this completely didn't click with me that Jamie Gillen's a Scottish hammer. I completely yeah. disconnected that nickname. So yeah, he's he knows his, he must know his way around uh, the UK at the very least. But well, I thought you were gonna say you know it's a shame. I thought you were gonna make this sort of joke. It's a shame the Scottish hammer couldn't get through the metal detector or something like that. And this is this is why we have you on the show, Jackson, <laughs> <laughs> for dad You're jokes right. like that. Well, again, we're talking whiplash here. Mm. We're finally covering a story that uh, has been in the news for a number of months at this point uh, and has just, you know, come across our desk as it begins to pick up more steam and become a, uh, you know, as it begins to start to head to court. Uh, Brett Favre has fully denied his involvement in the $77 million Mississippi State welfare scandal, uh, saying he's been unjustly smeared uh, by the media. Uh, some texts had leaked, uh, basically exclaiming, uh, you know, what had looked like textbook fraud, uh, texting back and forth with a nonprofit operator, Nancy New, basically saying, oh, if you guys pay me, is there any way anyone can find out? Uh, new basically saying no, uh, uh, further back and forth. Jackson, do you just give the audience a refresher on what's sort of going on with Favre and Mississippi as a whole? Yeah, I think it's important, first of all, to note that this is a much larger statewide public fraud case, and we're talking about $77 million here in the form of TANF funds, so temporary assistance to needy families. So literally the money set aside by the government designated to be given for the express purpose of helping the neediest, poorest people in what is currently the poorest state in the, Amer in the United States. So money that absolutely cannot be misappropriated in any way. Uh, and where FARS involvement gets tied up in this is they find that $5 million was donated to improve the Southern Mississippi volleyball facility, which coincidentally Brett Favre's daughter happens to be playing volleyball at Southern Mississippi at the time. Uh, further exploration into Favre's you know, previous charitable uh, doings, uh, his foundation called Favre for Hope, which is a charity quote for disadvantaged children, historically gave many, many five-figure donations first to uh, Brett Favre's daughter's high school, Oak Grove High School, um, $60,000 in 2014. And again, to their booster club specifically. The booster club, yes, specifically. Uh, and then later uh, when she matriculates to Southern Mississippi, uh, those charity donations from Favre's foundation grow to the, you know, the thirty-five dollars to $60,000 range year in, year out as well. So... It really is just a, a long-standing history of Brett Favre. And again, we're not going to say that giving money to help, you know, your high school booster club or your college booster club is a bad thing. It's where the money comes from. And this is money that is designated for the express purpose of, and in the Charitable Foundation's case, people who think they are giving money to help, you know, disadvantaged children, disadvantaged families, just the, the last people that should ever be taken from and that's where this becomes completely inexcusable behavior if proven true which by all indications it seems to be yeah and i i will point out that one 
this dates back as far as 2016, uh, which or 2015 rather, uh, is when the first payment was made by Favre to Hope to uh, Oak Grove and Southern Mississippi. Uh, I will shout out uh, Mississippi Free Press, uh, MississippiFreePress.org has a wonderful timeline uh, sort of detailing the entire ordeal with uh, documents, uh, texts acquired by open records request and discovery, uh, and really details the seven plus year ordeal uh, outlining this entire case, uh, essentially, uh, you know, well, again, innocent until proven guilty, but completely proving for, uh, for, uh, almost called him fraud, uh, Favre's statement fraudulent. Uh, we'll see where this goes, but it, it, with the recent development, it felt it was necessary to uh, rope in the FO News Show audience on what is going on with the former uh, NFL Hall of Famer. Yeah, absolutely. And there's another great, uh, you know, I'll shout out another uh, great piece of journalism on this uh, ESPN feature on it by a writer they have called Anthony Oliveri. Um, who goes to Kiln, Mississippi, which is Brett Favre's, you know, hometown and just the place where he's absolutely a local legend uh, and talks to people there who are either in shock that, you know, their quarterback is kind of under fire for doing something that, uh, you know, negatively impacts Mississippi citizens or just straight up can't accept it or won't accept it and refuse to believe that he did anything wrong. Uh, It's a very influential case study in you know how sometimes athletes become bigger than the law or or just become you know such folk heroes in the places that they come from that people refuse to believe that there's actually something going on there and and that's you know can be problematic too yeah it's a tragedy and just a reminder both the state funds and far you know the state funds are uh in the again most impoverished state in America uh, are being used for lower income citizens and welfare uh, individuals. And Favre's charity, Far for Hope, is specifically outlined as a charity to help disadvantaged children. So uh, about the, you know, pretty terrible misappropriation of funds there. Moving on to our injury roundup. Let's start off back in Carolina with Baker Mayfield. He's currently diagnosed with an ankle sprain. Uh, there's some back and forth as to whether or not he's been placed on the IR. I believe it's corrected to say he wasn't, but he is expected to miss at least two weeks. Uh, current timeline is two to six weeks. They'll see how it plays out. But Mayfield currently ranks 32nd in DUIAR and 31st in DVOA. Just not what you want out of the Carolina Panthers quarterback situation. They're planning on starting P.J. Walker, who does have a 2-0 career with a uh, 2-0 record, starting with the Panthers. He's started one game in each of his last two seasons with the Panthers. That's down to their fourth string at this point. Darnold's out with a uh, an ankle injury that is basically nowhere near uh, returnable from. Uh, and just a reminder that uh, rookie – quarterback Matt Corral is also just done for the year with a Liz Frank tear. Uh, Jackson, just about as 
bottom of the barrel as you can get for the Panthers who are already facing a, uh, a new chapter in their era, or at least a trans transitionary period between two eras of Panthers football. Yeah, it's, um, it's time to, to burn everything down. If you're, if you're Carolina, and I think they acknowledge that for the most part. Um, I don't know any Carolina fans who are putting their faith in PJ Walker and that's for good reason. The 2-0 record shouldn't distract from the fact that he has a 57% career completion percentage and two touchdowns to his eight interceptions. Uh, the game that he won last year was the, the headlines coming out of it were dominated by Cam Newton's return and involvement in the ground game. Uh, and Walker just happened to pick up the win against an Arizona team that we know fades in the second half of seasons, or at least historically did. So there's not hope there. Uh, Baker Mayfield, boy, like you, you talk about just somebody who has just completely done a 180 in terms of not, you know, it, it's not like he was ever a star, but 2020 Baker Mayfield was very good. And earlier in his career, before he sort of emerged as a viable starting quarterback, he was at least someone that was taking deep shots and, uh, you know, just pushing pushing himself and pushing kind of the boundaries of, of, you know, trying to make a play. Whereas now you see their offense and it's like, they're just stuck in traffic all the time. You know, there's nothing inventive They're They're refusing to throw the ball downfield. Anytime Baker, uh, you know, gets to his second or third read, he panics and throws it right to a DB. So it's, it's a really tough situation. And again, just goes to show that if you don't have a quarterback, you don't have anything. Uh, and that's been the problem in Carolina really since uh, kind of the, the decline of, of Cam Newton as a dual threat quarterback. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think the biggest issue might be the offensive line. Like part of the product of Baker Mayfield was just like, he's able to take those deep shots because he has time to throw. Uh, and he's, you know, Ikemaquan who's really struggled this year. The the line is, you know, marginally improved since uh Sam Darnold was taking snaps in 2021. But even if you look at time to throw, uh next gen stats in 2020, Baker Mayfield was second highest in the league in time to throw with 3.05 seconds. You look at it this year, it's not as bad as it's been in recent years, but it's it's not great either. Baker Mayfield down to 2.7 seconds flat. Uh, yeah. Tied with Andy Dalton. It's it's fringe bottom 10 in the league. So I'd argue he has slightly better receiving than he did in Cleveland. No one's, you know, no one better than Amari Cooper, but the, you know, combined results of a DJ Moore or Robbie Anderson even a Terrace Marshall Jr. went healthy. Uh, it should be a better unit than it is. You're expecting more out of a guy who's, you know, shown tape to be able to produce. You know, maybe Cleveland's run-heavy system imp- and offensive line, for that matter, improve things that much. Just, you know, heavier boxes are easier to pass on and you're getting more guys open, so you're getting easier looks. Like, and, you know, Kevin Stefanski over Matt Rules, an offensive guy, is you know pretty much night and day. But you know you can you can explain away stuff and you can explain the difference in situation. But bottom line is Baker Mayfield's been very bad. We'll see. I mean, 
Do you think he ends up anywhere else beyond this year? Do you think the guy's got some kind of future in the league? I only hold out a you know moderate optimism because of what we've seen out of guys like more Mariota than Mitchell Trubisky this year, but you know guys that have lost their jobs have gotten second chances and have gotten you know some sort of additional help. So this would be a third chance, not a second chance. I don't really think we ever get to that point, even for someone who was a number one overall pick. Uh, I think that he would have to drastically turn around his season in Carolina once he returns from this ankle sprain, if he returns before Sam Darnold and wins his starting job back. Uh, and even then, you know, I think he probably has a, a decent career ahead of him as a backup, if, if nothing else. But as far as, you know, based on the results he's shown, the probability of Baker getting another starting gig is very low, I would say. I mean, time will tell. More on quarterback injuries. Tua Tungvaluwa returning to the practice field today and will throw. Uh, He's beginning to his progression back from concussion protocol, according to NFL.com, but still remains in the protocol itself. There's a potential chance that he could be cleared before Sunday's game against the Vikings. However, McDaniels himself has said, I don't see him being active. I can say with certainly certainty that he's not going to play this week. So while he may be active and well, available, will not start the game. We're looking at Skylar Thompson because Teddy Bridgewater is also in concussion protocol after one snap as a starter against the New York Jets in week five. They're facing the Minnesota Vikings again, four and one on Sunday. Jackson, what do you have anything on the return for Tua? You know, I think that as, as kind of messy as the AFC is, it, it really makes sense for the Dolphins to wait until they are 100% assured that he is 100% healthy, not, you know, currently at cognitive risk of, of you know, further damage, which honestly – is, is almost impossible to guarantee this early. I mean, most concussion experts will tell you it can take, you know, anywhere from you know, four to eight weeks for this sort of thing, not to be, you know, a concern of, you know, a, a, a cumulative effect of all the concussions if he were to take another hit. Um, Skylar Thompson, Kale, was a guy that, you know, was one of the best quarterbacks in Kansas State history when he was healthy. Um, ended up getting drafted super late this past year, mostly because of his injury history and his age. He just turned 25, so that's obviously a very old rookie. Uh, but, you know, he, he performed well enough this preseason to, uh, you know, pretty much force the Dolphins to keep him rather than risk losing him to another team. So while his, you know, first debut, um, you know, being elevated from third string to first string in the span of a week is, is pretty tough. Uh, and you can understand that the performance wasn't great, but um, there's not, to me, it doesn't seem like this is, you know, a total nobody who has no chance to perform in, you know, a one game scenario, knowing that he has the start. Uh, so let's give him a chance this weekend. Minnesota for a four and one team, not the most impressive, uh, not especially on the defensive side of the ball. So I, I think they can still be competitive this week. Vegas Insider currently lists the Minnesota Vikings as consensus three and a half point favorites, which pretty doable. 
Uh, it's it's a bit more of a stretch when you realize that this is a uh, this is a home game for Miami. So you're buying, you know, a little bit more of home field advantage there. But you know, within reason, could work. You know, I've got faith in Tyler Thompson. Dolphins are banged up, but if they're looking for a win, they might have a new motivation play. Jackson, <laughs> according to ESPN, Marcel Luis Johnson. Dolphins have removed their ping pong table. Tyreek Hill told the media that the captains uh, collectively decided to take the Dolphins ping pong table out of the locker room in an effort to focus more intently on their upcoming opponent, the Vikings. Jackson, will that be enough to take (laughs) out the Vikings? It is. Ping pong is the biggest Rorschach test for any NFL team. Um, or any, you know, tech startup as well. Um, <laughs> depending on whether things are going great or things are going poorly, uh, the, the presence of a ping pong table can either be the driving force behind positive team culture and keeping things light and, and why things are seeming to be going so well, or if things are going poorly, can be seen as the ultimate distraction that is leading to everyone's uh, lack of competitive spirit and focus. So, hey, two straight losses, I guess it's it's the right time. It's, it's about that time on the, uh, the ping pong table uh, evolutionary scale to, to take it away. I hope it pays off for them. That's, it's worth a deep dive. It's really yeah. like, you know, when I was at Jets camp this summer, when Zach Wilson's talking about the mentorship from uh, Joe Flacco and, and someone had asked, you know, is it ever competitive between you two? Wilson basically answered, uh, you know, the only time it's ever competitive between us is when we're doing ping pong tournaments in the locker room. Jacksonville, for example, uh, one of their biggest changes in an off season full of them basically is that head coach Doug Peterson okayed the request from players to return the ping pong table to the locker room after a five-year hiatus for ESPN. <laughs> it's, it's worth the deep dive because I'm like I'm fascinated by just the obsession with like, like it's so you it's so ubiquitous in NFL locker rooms that it just it 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 tickles the brain a bit. It, it's it's it you know the little journalist wheels start turning and it's like, wonder where that started. You know, wonder why it's such a big impact. And and is it specifically just ping pong? Uh, that is this ubiquitous across clubhouses, you know, I would want to know, do the Dolphins also have a pool table that they're keeping? Or, uh, you know, do the Texas Rangers have both? uh, And when they're struggling, do they choose to remove the pool table first? You know, there's a lot of things that could be at play here. You know, who's got the most over-the-top clubhouse games? Who's got nothing? What does Bill Belichick say about all this? We do need to know. I Pool, t- pool tables are the most permanent installment. You ever try to lift one of those things? Those <laughs> things are sturdy. I can't imagine just, you know, and they got pool cues involved. That just feels like a big setup. Bing, pong, yeah, you cue. can't. When you have NFL offensive linemen, you can't have them risking their back health to lift a pool table. <laughs> really arching over for the cue ball to get like the right angle on a shot. That just seems like a headache. Ping pong easy you're staying agile it's reaction based there's some there's some you know additional unseen athletic benefits to it it's fascinating 
Moving over to San Francisco. They're dealing with a lot of injuries at the moment, Jackson. Uh, first off, Emmanuel Mosley, starting quarterback, done cornerback, done for the year with an ACL tear. Other quarterback, Jimmy Ward, broken hand, suffering in the same game against the Panthers, placed on IR potentially four to eight weeks, uh, missing time. Nick Bosa, additionally, out with a groin injury, or questionable with a groin injury. Second Bosa to injure their groin in three weeks. Uh, Joey Bosa also has a groin injury with the Chargers. Jackson, how do you think this affects the defense? And also, is, I, I just will attack this all. It's not really a question. How do the San Francisco – I guess it's a question. How do the San Francisco 49ers just keep getting this banged up? We talk about teams with particular injury bugs, and I know, you know, 2020 San Francisco was really uh, injury-ridden, but how does this just keep happening to the team? If I had a really good answer, I'd, I'd definitely be quick to say it. It's uh, it's unfortunate. They've definitely been one of the most injured teams over the past couple of years. Baltimore is another one that comes to mind, and injury luck is just a thing. Uh, and maybe there's maybe there's more at play, but I don't necessarily think there is uh, when it comes to these specific injuries. You know, being being this banged up in the secondary. Definitely not something you want to be dealing with at this time of year. Um, Ward, you know, currently listed on their depth chart is questionable, but obviously that seems like uh, a bit of a stopgap, which is a shame because they have had great safety play. Uh, The emergence of Talanoa Hufanga this year has been really fun to watch. Uh, You're probably going to see Tashawn Gibson really kind of step into that role at the free safety that Jimmy Ward was occupying, you know, Gibson's been around for a while. I don't know how much he still has left in the tank, but that could be, uh, you know, a potential weapon for opposing offenses to exploit as long as Ward's out. Um, you know, the cornerback position, who are you looking at now? Uh, you know, Diamador Lenoir, uh, Lenoir, I don't know exactly how you pronounce that, to step in for Mosley. Uh, kind of an unproven commodity at the position. Uh, when you have someone like Charvarius Ward on the other side, who's very much a proven commodity and, and done some great things, you're probably looking at, you know, guys picking on Lenoir. So it's it's always next man up in San Francisco. It always has been. Uh, and they usually do a very solid job of it. But you wonder if there's a point at which you can be too injured, sort of like they were in 2020, where, you know, a previously promising season sort of starts to fall off a little bit. 49ers defense currently leads the league in defensive DVOA. First in rush with a minus 30. Fifth in pass with a minus 24.2. Javarius Ward's been having a fantastic season for San Francisco, but you can imagine it takes a bit of a hit this week. And, you know, I'm looking at that week six game against Atlanta, who is a – they've been a scrappy team. Uh, they, they've given a lot of teams a decent run for their money. Uh, two and three record is no slouch. They beat up on a Seattle Seahawks team and not going to win there. They – Most of these losses also just decided by one score. Going to be a tough battle headed into week six for San Francisco. Speaking of that Seahawks team, taking a massive hit with lead back Rashad Penny out for the year with a fractured fibula. He's carted off the field in the third quarter of Seattle's 39-32 loss to the Saints. It's just a week removed from one of the best performances of his career. 
but certainly the best performance of his season this year. 151 yard rushing performance with two touchdowns against the Detroit Lions. Jackson, how do you think Kenneth Walker is going to fill in here? It's a massive, massive loss for a very likable Seattle team. It is very likable. And you know who else is likable? Kenneth Walker. I think there's there's real potential there. I mean, you don't you don't win the the Walter Camp and the Doak Walker Awards unless you've got some pretty serious talent. And while, you know, there was maybe some polish that needed to be added to his game when he first gets to the pro level, and you obviously have Rashad Penny coming off a very strong second half to last season. That's why he's still your starter. Uh, I think we we definitely need to give Kenneth Walker a chance here because, you know, just so far, uh, the 6.3 yards per rush and, and you know, getting his first career touchdown out of the way this past week, you know, there's there's definite promise there. You, you could do a lot worse. Um, and, and running backs are guys that typically peak earlier in their careers. Um, you know, we've seen it time and time again with, you know, from Zeke Elliott to Todd Gurley to now, you know, even, uh, you know, you don't want to say Brees Hall is peaking, but he looks great as a rookie. So uh, I'm definitely giving Kenneth Walker every chance to be, you know, the guy in this backfield for the rest of the season. You know, last week against Saints was solid, but I also look back at the Detroit game, breaking down the film for any given Sunday. It wasn't a fantastic performance. I really found him just kind of, you know, he had a 13-yard long rush, uh, but beyond that, it was he finished the day eight attempts for 29 rushing yards. Uh, I found him a lot of times just kind of running into, you know, it was very much you know two yards in a cloud of dust almost with how he was just running into a pile of, you know, silver and Honolulu blue jerseys behind this offensive line. Uh, I hope things open up more for him. Uh, should be good, but man, that is a tough blow to a very, very dynamic, uh, surprisingly so, Seattle Seahawks offense. Uh, so but I would say you know, there's, there's other guys. There's other guys you can less afford to lose. As as much as Rashad Penny was great this year, you know, you had the replacement pretty obviously in house. You look at somebody like Tyler Lockett, who's top five in the league in receiving yards. You can't lose that even more so, I would say. You know, there's the weapons in their passing game are infinitely more valuable when it comes to, you know, kind of building this thing around the, the resurgent Geno Smith. Yeah, you see it in their DVOA offensively. Leading the league offensive DVOA, that's propped up by a 45.1% passing DVOA offensively and a 12th best 5.3% rushing offense, DVOA. Last one to round out the injury news roundup, Baltimore Ravens getting a lot back. First off, Tyus Bowser, who led the team in tackles last year, and rookie David Ajabo. A couple linebackers coming back to the fold, joining a loaded Ravens defense. Jackson, is this the thing that's going to take Baltimore over the hump right now? Because it is, you know, that's two major ads right there. I had tapped Bowser as the Ravens' best value player in an FO Plus article for ESPN Plus. Uh, David Ajabo looked like the steal of the draft based where he was landed uh, comparatively to where he, you know, started out on that Georgia defense and where he was initially uh, – 
projected to go prior to his uh, Achilles injury in camp. What do you think about this Baltimore defense? Because I think this is a major, major addition for a Baltimore pass rush. I mean, I love it, right? Like, it's it's definitely what you wanted to see uh, in terms of, you know, a break in the right direction for Baltimore. It's, it's getting um, – and it's great, I think, too, that it's an established vet and somebody who's been an important part of that defense and a guy who, you know, can potentially add something new. Um, David Ajabo, one of my favorite stories, you know, coming into this year because obviously when he – uh, tears his Achilles. I, was it the draft combine or sometime around, you know, those pre it was at his, It was at his pro day oh, and right, correction. Yeah. It was Michigan, not Georgia. Correct. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to be the guy to correct you, but yes, it is indeed Michigan. <laughs> been. Um, he's, he's a special talent, you know, and he's also, uh, you know, just one of the cooler stories, you know, that's a guy that was born in Nigeria, moved to Scotland, moved to New Jersey at age 17 and, you know, had never played football before. And all of a sudden it's just a monster, um, you know, going from going from not playing to being a Michigan commit in the span of a year uh, means you are a pretty, pretty special athlete. And also that you probably still have a lot more room to grow. So really excited for him to make his debut and really excited that he gets to do it alongside a defense that's, you know, getting healthier as the season goes on, which is always a bonus. Yeah. Which is a, uh, you know, contradiction to where they were last year. Baltimore currently ranks defensively uh, pretty low in adjusted sack rate, 18th in the league, 5.9% adjusted sack rate. Major, major injection of talent for a team looking to really compete in a surprisingly tight AFC North. Moving on to Thursday night football, our usual news roundup for the Commanders and the Bears. We've got to start with this Ron Rivera, Carson Wentz story, Jackson. Uh, You know, as a guy who's really focused on uh, quotes and podium performances, throughout his first few years at Football Outsiders running the week in quotes. Uh, that one-word remark uh, that uh, Ron Rivera had given, uh, talking about the lack of production from his team, uh, basically just saying quarterback, not just throwing Wentz under the bus, driving the bus over him. Uh, <laughs> and swiftly too. Yeah, no, it was – he stepped on the gas. Uh, Rivera came out and apologized to Wentz officially uh, said Carson and I had a nice conversation. So I think we're ready to roll per ESPN. Are they ready to roll, Jackson? Uh, Wentz is 29th in DYAR, 28th in DVOA, 26th in EPA per play. That does not sound ready to roll to me, but hey, I guess we'll see. You know, Ron Rivera can be in the wrong when making this statement. And I specifically you know, the question being asked about, you know, his team compared to the other teams in the NFC East, it's hard to excuse him for not being successful with Carson Wentz when the Giants have been successful with Daniel Jones, who has the most uncertain future you possibly could with the team coming into the season, uh, and with the Cowboys, who have gone 4-0 with their backup quarterback. So clearly teams are making more with less or making more out of an uncertain situation. Whereas you brought in Carson Wentz to be your guy. So it's on you to help him be successful. Uh, And two, 
Um, you can be wrong to make that statement for all those reasons I just enumerated and still be right in general because he has been abysmal. Uh, Carson Wentz, for all the numbers that you just gave, uh, has been one of the biggest problems with this team. I will also point out that this team has not had a successful defensive season at all, uh, specifically passing-wise. They're 29th in DVOA against the pass uh, and surprisingly sixth against the rush. So if you're looking for the blueprint on how to beat Washington's defense, um, first of all, I don't think the Bears have it in this matchup because it is to pass the ball. Uh, and two, there it is. It's right in front of you. So uh, the the Washington Commanders football team not looking very good at the moment. Yeah. I was The last thing I want to add to that is not only do you, like, you know what you signed up for in Carson Wentz. Like, you watched, you know, you could see the season-to-season highs and lows when he was in Philly. Those highs and lows were consolidated into one season with the Colts, and that one season of highs and lows was basically consolidated into that one game against the Tennessee Titans last week, where puts up a pretty stellar performance for the commander statistically. And then in the last goal-to-go situation that basically would have won the commanders the game, uh, throws four straight picks. Three of them were out of bounds, and two of them were close calls. <laughs> it didn't quite turn up picks, but it ended in a pick on third down anyway. So at this point, you know you've signed up for it once. But back to what you said about the defense. The, you know, six against the rush, 29th against the pass. You know the guy that's going to fix that, Jackson? Sun Devil McNeil Harry. Oh, God. Yes. Off of IR. 2019 Pats first rounder who was taken ahead of A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, Debo Samuel. Currently in his career, hasn't quite panned out to be the first round pick that he was deemed. But, you know, is this is this the guy, Jackson? Is Nikhil Harry the guy that's going to fix Justin Fields? Is this the guy that's going to give him the uh, the confidence to actually throw the ball? Um, I'm going to say no, Kale. I, you know, I really hate to do that, but I'm, I'm going to say no. Um, it's <sighs> Nikhil Harry, man. What a, what a tough story. And he's, you know, been your darling uh, throughout his career. You were always like, you know, we can fix him somehow. Um, the film. I watched that, I watched that one take on, on draft night, Jackson, uh, of him making, basically the Odell catch while falling or taking a screen and completely reversing field. Uh, I, I thought he was that dude. I really, really did. Uh, it hasn't, hasn't uh, quite been out like that, but, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, wishful thinking, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's not great. It's really not. Um, I do love uh, our, our chat, you know, Wondering if the problem with uh, Carson Wentz was potentially that he's not rushing as much. So I'll just briefly address that. I'll just, I, I don't think it is. I, I see that his career high in rushing was 2017 when he averaged 23 yards per game. But uh, other than that, like numbers look pretty similar, especially, you know, in terms of like the number of rushing yards and the number of times he's taking off in rushing, you know, career high is 64, rushed 57 times last year. 17 this year so maybe not fully on pace to get to that number but 
I don't think the rushing is to blame here. Just to round that one out, the uh, I've got his DYAR stats up here for his career. Uh, surprisingly, never been that efficient rushing. Uh, he's finished top 10 in DYAR just once, and that was in his final year with the Eagles in 2020. Eighth best. Oh, sorry, he finished two. Uh, 2019, he finished 10th in DYAR with 56. Eighth in DYAR in 2020 with 62. Uh, never finished higher than 16th in DVOA among rushing quarterbacks. And this year, he's currently 20th in DYAR uh, in rushing amongst quarterbacks with one. And 19th in DVOA amongst rushing quarterbacks with a negative 10.3. Last thing in Chicago, we got a little bit of uniform news. Going to wear the orange helmets for the first time against Washington on Thursday night. Not much else to say, but Jackson, I'm not a big fan of the orange. I'm going to say it's not. (laughs) Um, Yeah, not much else to say, but gross. Uh, uh, Why is another thing I would say. Um, ew is another thing I would say. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm not stoked about this one. I think it could be one of the ugliest uniform matchups of the year, which is definitely something we care a lot about, especially heading into Thursday night football, which has long made news for uniform purposes, whether it was the color rush, whether it was the Bengals going Siberian Tiger on us this year. You know, Thursday nights are often the time to debut you know, kind of controversial new signature looks. And I think this Bears one is a giant swing and a miss. And I'm also very interested to see how Washington counters it because I they could come out in the all blacks and it could be a terrible looking game. They could come out in those new whites with sort of the reverse number gradient and it could be a terrible looking game. It seems like there's really no winning here. It's going to be an eyesore on Amazon. <laughs> and I'll tell you what. But that'll do it for us at the FO News Show. Make sure to join us next week, same time, same place, Twitch or YouTube, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Make sure to drop a subscription to the uh, Football Outsiders YouTube channel to keep up to date on all things Football Outsiders, all of our shows, Got something new coming this Friday as well, which I'm very excited about. Can't quite talk about it yet, but you can join us there soon. But that'll do it for us today. For Jackson, I'm Kale. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.